given us what we need. We pray that you'd make us generous like yourself. We pray that you'd help us to understand that giving to the local church is one of the greatest things that we can give to, um, because it, it helps and prevents so many of the great difficulties in life, and it combines both mercy and worship together by demonstrating that we care for others as we value you. Help us also to be a church that is sufficiently concerned with the poor and their needs, um, as we also do the work of, of proclaiming your message simultaneously, and, and to include both of those properly in the use of the money that you give through your saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, clearly, I had four scriptures read for you this morning, and that may terrify you that I'll preach for hours. I assure you I could this morning. Um, but I'm going to try to weave together a couple things that are really important and try to make them sensible to us spiritually. And I'm going to try not to talk super fast. Um, hopefully, I'm going to get to uh, and ask me anything. So if there's stuff I go through too quickly or don't cover in sufficient depth for you, please text in a question or send one in if you're at your computer. We've talked over the last few weeks about Advent being a time of waiting. It's a fast in the Christian calendar. It is a time of mourning and waiting, right? What are we waiting for, right? And most of us know the answer to that. What is the answer we're waiting for? Jesus! It's great. Um, was that joy? Of course it was. Um, and so we're waiting for Jesus, but the question is, for what? Like, for what are we waiting for Jesus, right? And so Christians will say, like, in, like our religious do, well, salvation, right? We're waiting for salvation. Well, what does that mean? Like, if you have a secular friend that doesn't use the word salvation all the time, what do you mean by salvation? Like, we can use all these religious words, but you don't understand your religion, and they certainly won't understand it unless we know what we mean by it. What do we mean by salvation? And the answer is that one of the most fundamental— Probably the fundamental expression, metaphor, picture of salvation in the Bible of what it means that we're waiting for Jesus is Jesus is coming as a liberator from, from oppression and exploitation in particular, right? If you look at all of the narrative of the Bible from the beginning of Genesis all the way through to the very end, and you look at just the narrative, you don't look at anything else, what you would think the story was about was oppression, liberation, oppression, liberation, oppression, liberation, oppression, liberation. That flows all the way through the narrative structure of the Bible. Now, when people interpret the Bible who don't feel particularly politically, personally, and economically oppressed, we don't necessarily key in on that narrative function. Most people in the history of the world, including right now, do. I assure you, when I go and preach in extremely poor parts of India, they key in on it. I had lunch with an African-American pastor friend this, this uh, week, and I assure you that when, we, when they preach through the gospel, they key on it. But oftentimes, um, other folks don't. Most of the theology taught in our seminaries and that we read was written by people in the Western world in the last 200 years. That's not a big focus. And it's true that justification or being forgiven from sins is part of that theme and a wider theme. So if you look at the sacrificial system as it runs through the Bible, the focus there is forgiveness, dealing with sins, justification, right standing before God. And those two run together all through the Bible. Justification, liberation. Justification, liberation. What we're waiting for is liberation. Now, it's not as simple as that because um, you, you might say like, okay, that's great. Um, I, you know, like I, I sometimes sense that like I'm under the oppression of sin and like there's a curse in this world, all kinds of bad things happen that shouldn't. And it's a great and wonderful thing that um, there will be a final liberation from all of the curse. And so I'm happy about that. And, but also one of the things we have to recognize is that it's not as simple as saying— you know what? You're, Nick, you're right, Nick. I'm oppressed, and Jesus is going to come and liberate me, right? There's this strange interrelated cocktail of a hundred things running together, right? Pinocchio is a good example of this, if you remember this film, right? He isn't just this, like, perfectly innocent human who gets oppressed and then gets liberated by an outside force. 
It's a strange, weird cocktail, the fact that, like, he's utterly naive, which leads to, because he won't listen to his conscience and grow morally, ridiculous levels of foolishness, in which he's complicit in his own taking captive, and even when he gets free from his first uh, directly oppressive and exploitative captivity, he then falls passively into the captivity of sin by loving only pleasure, and only by extreme exertion and the work of another's for salvation does he ultimately find liberation, does he become a morally serious person, and does he find the companionship of love of his creator? Right? It's all this weird cocktail. No, it's not as simple as like, hey, there's some oppressed people over here, and there's some perpetrators over here, and the perpetrators are oppressing the oppressed people, and then Jesus is going to come back with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to slay the wicked, and he's going to save the oppressed. It's not really that simple. Right? But, okay, so step out of, like, into non-theological, secular world. If you talk to normal people about, like, how human beings develop and flourish, what they'll tell you is the most fundamental, foundational human need is security. Security, right? All the books on how kids flourish, what they all say this now, right? And they're right about this. The kids need security. They need to feel loved. They need to feel safe. Now, they need more than that as they develop. After they feel secure, they need to develop grit and conscientiousness, and they have to learn how to deal with stress and difficulty and face problems. But that's supposed to flow out of a secure place. They go out, they stress themselves, they have a secure place to come back to. They have arms to hold them after they get hurt, right? They, they go, they should scrape their knee, but then they should also have a mommy to come crying back to. And that reciprocation back and forth between stress and comfort, insecurity and security, allows them to become a secure person living in an insecure world under the curse, right? Everybody needs security, right? Kids, but that's supposed to be developed into adulthood. We're supposed to be secure. And we're not, generally speaking. And in order to be secure, it's not just simply that you know who you are, and you know how you have good standing with everybody else. You don't feel self-hatred. And it's also not just that somebody's going to come and oppress you and take your house and, like, make you their slave, right? In order for somebody to feel reasonably secure, they have to have both. They have to have justification. I have the right to be here, and nobody can condemn me justly. And liberty. Nobody is going to come and oppress me. Both of those must exist. Like, if you think about, like, going through the, the security in the airport, right? Like, nobody likes going through the security in the airport. I mean, I know there's some people who are like, how efficiently can I do this? And they, like, try to find, like, but, like, generally speaking, nobody likes that. But, but there's a benefit. Once you get through, only people with boarding passes have gotten through. Only people justified to be there. There's nobody else working against what you're there to do, which is to safely fly through the air to another place to pursue human flourishing as you've chosen, right? And you know that you're safe generally speaking, right? And, and the aerial industry, relative to like things like high business has been remarkably safe. Whether it's the most efficient way to do it, who knows, but it is safe. So you get through this thing and you feel secure because you're justified and because you're secure. And so you just go about your business and pay your $74 for Coke, you know what I mean? And enjoy yourself. <laughs> now, one of the things we have to understand, we, you really can't understand Jesus, until you, we understand this in the fullest possible sense, is that Jesus is a great liberator. One of the things that really, really grieved me is I, an African-American pastor in town wrote last year, a year before, um, somewhere publicly, um, the white church is a mess and the black church is a mess and both worship Jesus, but we worship a different Jesus. And he wasn't specific about what he meant by that, right? And I think that was intentional because he wanted it to be provocative, right? And I think that that's both right and wrong, right? There's something to that because we— if you, if you look at Jesus just through like a certain lens, then you'll pick up some things. And if you look at Jesus through another lens, you'll pick up other things. They're both actually true, 
but you'll pick up just a little set of them, right? And when, when Jesus presents himself to the world, he presents himself as the second Moses, the triumphant liberator. He's not yet—think about this. He's always been the second David, but he's not functioning like the second David yet. He's still functioning as the second Moses. He's liberating from oppression as a prophet. And he will come and liberate from oppression as a king. Right? And so it's important to recognize that to see the whole of Jesus as the great liberator, we have to see him through all of the angles he presents himself as. Not just the ones our experience would draw us to, but all the ones in which he presents himself. Right? Which is, one, <clears throat> liberating us from oppression that's upon us. Right? Like, when we are oppressed or exploited in some kind of way, we want to be freed from that. And sometimes we can't do it ourselves, and we need help. And God says he cares about that. We should cry out to him, and that he will ultimately solve this problem in his final return. Right? He also has come to save us from the exploitation and oppression that is by us. Scripture speech speaks unblushingly and teaches unequivocally that all human beings are both victims and perpetrators when it comes to exploitation and oppression. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And then third is the exploitation and oppression within you. That is, the indwelling sin produces an internal relationship of self-exploitation. That is, we present ourselves as slaves to sin, as it says in Romans 6. And what that produces is both our willingness and wickedness to oppress others, and by producing a wretched weakness in us, it makes us susceptible and given to being oppressed and to be utterly dominable or able to be dominated in our spirit when we are oppressed. Which every Christian should know the possibility that they are, will be externally exp oppressed in their life is high, and that the ability to be indomitable, undominatable, unable to be dominated in spirit in that oppression is a gift of God in salvation that is rare in its achievement. Sorry, that was a joke about the, about the band poison instead of the poison pill. Okay, so first is Jesus is the great liberator of the oppressed. He's the great liberator of the oppressed. Those who are oppressed and exploited, he is the great liberator of the oppressed and the exploited, right? It says in this, in this passage that the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites, and they oppressed them with forced labor. That is, notice this, exploitation and oppression. Exploitation. They stole the productivity of the Jews. That is, they, they had them build up store cities. That is, excesses of grain normally used in oppressive external military campaigns when the, when the army was mobilized to leave Egypt and go kill other people and take their land. There were cities at the borders of Egypt that the Jews had to build up so that when the army went out of Egypt through Goshen to attack the promised land and beyond, the Jews would have piled up grains and other supplies necessary for the army to be maximally productive in harming and oppressing other people. Right? And it says that as the, as the Jews were oppressed, well, how do people find comfort when they're oppressed? They don't have any money, they don't have any freedom, but they still have each other, right? They find comfort in each other's arms, in which it produces naturally with fertility more humans, which has more people that you have the boot, your boot on their neck, which means you're holding more dogs by the ears that would love to bite you. And so eat, with no fault of people who are being oppressed, the oppressors becomes more and more afraid of them because they realize that sometime, at some point, this is going to spin out of control, and what are these people going to do? And so the desire to press down on them increases. So they move from exploitation to oppression. And then if you keep reading, they 
they try to kill all the boy children of the Jews. So it goes from exploitation to oppression to destruction, right? It's important to recognize that exploitation has a good and negative definition, but in its basic negative definition, it is stealing the productivity or misusing the value of another. Now, the reason why it's important to know the general definition of exploitation is because if you don't, you'll never think it applies to you. But exploitation is simply stealing the productivity or misusing the value of another person. So, for example, slavery is exploitation. You're stealing the productivity of another person, right? What Lincoln called, Abraham Lincoln called the unrequited toil, right? It's also intentionally knowing you have somebody under the, you have like somebody like over the barrel and paying them less than the value they're bringing in at your, at your, at your work, right? You know that their productivity is worth $24 an hour or $12 an hour, but you still pay them seven or 13 because you can, right? Oppression is not just taking the, the value of others, but it's also pressing down on them to keep them from flourishing, and usually with the intent of demoralizing their spirit. And so it said that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and because of that, because they dreaded them, not because they could get more work out of them, but because they dreaded them, they worked them in an increasingly ruthless way to destroy their spirit. We'll talk about that more in the third point, right? You can see this in Deuteronomy, that un, with that idea, the idea of that there are oppressed and exploited people and that God cares about them and seeks to liberate them, is this is what is meant when, when Moses says, look, another prophet is going to come after me, and you have to listen to them. And not just any prophet. There's going to be lots of prophets. But here he speaks of one prophet, like Moses, right? Moses was the prophet who spoke to God face to face. Moses was the prophet who did amazing miracles that no prophet after him ever did. Anything close. Right? He led his people out of slavery. He created a new covenant with God. It was the intermediary between God and them to create a new covenant. He brought them a new law, and he gave them the power to accomplish it. And he gave them a promised land, a place to live in peace, where he would create a, a state of righteousness and justice in which they could live before him in peace all their days. And they blew it under Moses. But Jesus is the true and second Moses, and part of being the true and second Moses means he hates oppression— and exploitation. He is against it. To be for it is to be against him. To not care about it is to not care about what he cares about. And, and to be his in this world is to be one of his vessels as ambassador or actor against it, and ultimately to cheer when he destroys it, and therefore to as much as we can not be a participant in any domain of oppression and exploitation of anybody. Now, does that mean you can't buy tomatoes from South America? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know it does mean I don't want to buy stuff manufactured by Uyghurs who are in concentration camps, if I can figure it out. And I'm actually really glad that our, that our government this week, like, like, is putting something in front of our president to sign that nothing from the province that the Uyghurs are from can be sent to, can be bought in America. Like, they're going to, like, flat ban this stuff. And I'm like, well, all right. I mean, at least you're trying. Is that the right policy? I don't know. But at least you're trying, you know? So, um, so what? So what are some applications of this? The first is, have hope under all oppression and exploitation. I don't know if you think you're oppressed or exploited. You might think you are. We all think we're more exploited and oppressed than we probably are. But, um, you know, there's like some kid here who'd be like, I, I didn't get waffles for breakfast, Pastor Nick. I totally get this, you know? Um, but like, there's, there's all kinds of— every, You know, anytime you're used by another person— where they take some of your productivity, they have an ability to take it without remunerating you for it, 
right? Any way in which you are misused, your values misused by another person, that is a form of exploitation. And when people try to press down on you and keep you from flourishing, because they don't want you to flourish because it threatens them and they dread you for some reason, that is oppression. And there are obviously very, extremely varied levels of that. But to whatever extent we have experienced it, are experienced it, or will experience it, right, we can have hope. And we can follow the God who suffers oppression, right? Jesus, who submitted himself to be killed and oppressed and treated horribly, is the God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all power over all things, and for some, some meaningful purposes, he submitted to oppression in order to ultimately defeat it, right? Third is you can cry out to God and groan in your oppression. We talked—I talked about this like the last couple of weeks. So I'm not going to go back to that. Two weeks ago, I talked about persecution. A week ago, I talked about groaning in suffering, and those can be applied to this. Fourth is resist creeping and systematic oppression. I put in creeping and systematic, so if you're a Democrat, you you like systematic. If you're a Republican, you like creeping. But the point is, is that there's lots of ways for exploitation and oppression to grow and exist, right? Sometimes it's already built into the system, and you've got to dig it out, i.e., systemic, or on the other side, sometimes it's creeping. Sometimes it's coming in from someplace where it maybe wasn't before, where you had a reasonable amount of liberty established, and now, and sometimes it's happening to both at the same time. Sometimes there is a creeping oppression that claims it's getting rid of a systematic oppression, but is actually making that worse, or there's some kind of problem, and it's very, it's difficult. There's, you can't be Pinocchio. You can't be foolish and full of nonsense about what actually produces oppression. And Christians should be for both. Rejecting creeping oppression and rooting out systemic oppression. Right? And, and, and not only can the Republican be right or the Libertarian be right that the way we're trying to liberate people right now in America is a kind of creeping totalitarianism oppression that's growing. The opposite is also true. If you leave systemic oppression in place and you don't address it, people become tired of it and they get tired of whatever you call liberty and then they throw that away. And they welcome with open arms some new form of totalitarianism. So neither is safe. It's not safe to leave the systematic oppression in place to deal with the creeping oppression, but neither is it safe to allow the creeping oppression because you want to get rid of the systemic oppression. You have to actually have discernment and slice your way through these and try to get through the real systemic oppression in any human group, whether it's your family or the society, while not allowing the creeping oppression. Sorry it's that hard. It is. That's why human beings don't live well together. Right? And then what that means is where you find real oppression, truthfully, that we should want to fight it with the weapons of peace until Jesus comes to fight it with the weapons of war. The second is Jesus is a great liberator of oppressors. He's a great liberator of oppressors, not just the oppressed. It's another reality of Jesus' work, and it's one that we have to accept if we're going to accept the real Jesus. Right? God wants both justice and liberty. Right? He wants us to stand justly and have justification to be uncondemned, and he also wants liberty. He wants us to be able to flourish and to do what he created us to do. And the, the problem is, is that if God judged all the perpetrators in the world in order to liberate all the world's victims, there would be no one to enjoy the liberation. Right? That is one of the fundamental realities of Christian teaching, is that all of us are sinners. That is, sin is, the, sin is always treating other human image bearers as they shouldn't be treated— or exploiting God and his promises and his will, or exploiting the very creation God told us to take dominion over for its flourishing. Therefore, all sin is exploitation. And when we don't repent of it, and we double down on it, it's oppression. 
All sin. And does the Bible teach that we are all sinners? Yes, it does. Does it say that we're all sinners far beyond we ever imagined? Yes, it does. In many places. And all sin is exploitation and oppression by its very nature. Therefore, if God is going to save any victims, he must save perpetrators. Which means redemption is necessary. Forgiveness has to be possible. People who have been perpetrators have to be able to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Can something make up for this where I've fallen short, where I've done what I shouldn't have done in your creation, God, to your people for myself, right? And the answer is God says yes to this. Yes. God is utterly convinced of the, of the goodness and personally dedicated to the execution of saving the worst creatures in his creation. He offers pardon and salvation to every exploiter and every oppressor before he destroys them. And that's why, that's why his pursuit of the exploiter must come before his liberation of the exploited. All who can be redeemed from their exploitation have to be saved first because that's the only group that's going to survive his liberation of the oppressed. Do you understand? And so it says, for example, in Luke it says, this is Zechariah prophesying about John the Baptist who was just born. He said, um, he's, the whole, he's, it says, he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. It says, the oath he swore to our fathers Abraham. That is, he said, God said to Abraham that he would be a liberator. Right? to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, so think, think about this. He, he says earlier, he comes as the second David to fulfill the promise from Abraham. So the conquering king, who is the liberator, comes to fulfill the promise given to the first patriarch that God would be the rescuer and liberator, right? And so now what's John's job? So, because God's going to come in his Messiah that we now know is Jesus, and he's going to liberate everyone. What's John's job? It says this, but you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. That is, something has to be done before the Lord comes and destroys the wicked. Something must be done even before he comes to be an ambassador to the wicked, right? He says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. So you're going to tell people how they can be saved, how they can be gods, how they can be rescued, how they can be rescued from the oppression that they're under. How can people be rescued from the oppression that they're under? Because they're victims. And he says, you're going to teach them that it comes through the forgiveness of their sins. Do you see the logic there? Everybody who heard this, everybody who knew that a Savior would come, knew that the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans. They knew that they were ruthlessly hated because of their race. They knew that they were ruthlessly hated because of their former lack of submission to Roman rule. They knew that everybody wanted to step on their necks and piss on their graves. They knew that they were victims. They knew that they were be being treated unjustly and wrongly, and they were waiting for God's liberation. And Zechariah says by the Holy Spirit, he says, my son John, you're going to go to them, and you're going to tell them that they can be saved. They can be rescued. They can be delivered. The deliverer is coming, and this is how they can be saved. Before the deliverer comes and destroys all of the unjust, before he comes and destroys all the exploiters, before he comes and he judges all of the oppressors, my son, go and tell them how to not be oppressors and exploiters anymore. Go and show them how to repent of their sins. Go and show them how the pardon of God can be received by them because of his loving mercies. Go and show them how they can be forgiven of their sins. 
because of the tender mercies of our God so that he can show us how to walk in the paths of peace. So that when he comes to judge the oppressor and the exploiter, the sinner, you'll be forgiven already. You see, God has come as the liberator, he is, and he is coming as the final liberator um, to liberate all who are not exploiters and oppressors. And if that's going to be good news, then we have to not be those ourselves, but we are. Now you might be like, Nick, I'm not like an Egyptian dreading somebody and like working them. I'm not a slave master. That's fine, but listen. Um, so one of the most common arguments that young married couples have, and this usually comes up in most new um, uh, roommate situations, is who should do what chores and like who's pulling their weight around here, right? I remember I had a, I had a um, roommate in college and we were charismatics kind of at the time and I asked him like, are you ever going to do the dishes? And, and he's like, well, I, I, you know, I, I do when I feel, when I feel led, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, if I got a baseball bat, could I make you feel that? Like, like, like I, will you do, like, you know, and, and like, no, and, right? And Alexa and I had this, when we were like first married, we were living in an apartment together, and like we're both really frustrated. With, we're getting angry at each other because, and w- w- why are we getting angry at each other, right? We're, we're newlyweds. We're in love. I married the woman of my dreams. I'm, I should be ecstatic. Why am I so angry at her? And the answer is, why is she so angry at me? And the answer is, is because we both thought the other person wasn't pulling their weight. What chores are you doing? What chores am I doing? How hard are you working? How many hours do you work? What, right? How did I feel? I felt like I was being what? Exploited. Right? I'm—you're getting me to do more. You're choosing to do less so that you can get along with me carrying you. Right? And that's how she felt about me. Ironic that we both felt that way about each other. Seems like there could be some self-righteousness in this calculus. Right? <laughs> and the thing is, is that we never solved it. We came up with a list of chores that we picked our way through it and, you know, mostly did those things. And that was okay. But without trust and acceptance, you never get past that. Because you always feel like you're being misused. And the answer is, it's because you sort of are. Because we all are. All the time. In flippant ways we don't want to pay attention to because we're like Pinocchio. We're naive and stupid and foolish. And so because we're not morally serious, we don't think about the implications of what we do. And so we just like— exploit people around us in little ways, and we just are really good at making excuses for it. But God calls it sin. He calls it iniquity. He says it produces death, and he calls it what it is. It is the exploitation and the oppression of another image bearer, and God's rage over it is utterly proportionate and just and good. In fact, it's necessary. In fact, if you saw your sin for what it was, and we put a different face on you in the video you watched, you would want yourself killed. Right? Think about how this, how, the, how we never think we're exploiters or oppressors. In Luke 4, Jesus reads this incredible passage from the book of Isaiah about how God was going to come in his Messiah and liberate the people. Right? Everything in the passage is about liberation. Right? It says, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The poor will have what they didn't have access to. Right? They'll be just. Right? Two, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That, that is, people who have been imprisoned unjustly or too long or wrongly, right? And then he says, to recovery of sight of the blind, that is the oppression of the curse, right? Holding you down by not allowing you to see so you can't be productive in the way God created you to be, and to release the oppressed. So like two of the four are literally 
liberation, and the other two are metaphorically or structurally liberational. The whole thing is about liberation. And he says, in, in doing this, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And he doesn't read the next verse, and the day of the vengeance of our God, because that's going to come later, right? And they, and, and, and what do people, how do people respond to him? They love it. They love it. They love it. Right? It says, and they all spoke well of him. And they marveled at his gracious words. And they say, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? Right? Like, how could they have raised such an articulate boy? This is really good. He might go to the Ivy Leagues, you know? And so then Jesus has to ruin it. He's always ruining stuff. Have you noticed this? Like, he's just, he can't leave, he just can't leave well enough alone. And so he goes, listen, y'all, here's what you're going to say to me. You're going to quote the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do in your hometown what you've done in Capernaum. And then he's just like, basically, he's like, listen, you realize that there were other widows in all of Israel starving during the Great Famine, and God sent Elijah to help this widow that isn't even an Israelite. And there was, a, there was another time when there's plenty of people dying of leprosy in Israel, but the Syrian army leader who led armies to hurt our people, the only one he got healed was him. Right? And they're like, why are you saying this, you big jerk? And, they, and it says, right, they try to kill him. They try to take him to the edge of Nazareth. At the end of Nazareth, there's this huge cliff that goes down a very long way. And it, and, and it says, like, they tried to throw him over. And it says he walked through them. Right? Which is a really weird passage in the Bible, right? Whether he, like, you know, like, went immaterial, or like, whether he just kind of, like, there was just this look Jesus had, like your dad, where they're like, about to push him off, and he just looks at him, like, and they're like, okay, wait, maybe not. No, I, I don't really know. I, I think it's the latter. I think he probably had some kind of look or something where he's just like, you're not going to push me off. It's like, he, it was like, it was like, he was this, like, really sweet person, and then all of a sudden, it's like, Clint Eastwood, and they're like, okay, no, and they back off, and he just walks through them. They're all like, why are we not throwing him off? I thought, what happened, right? And at least, why, I think Jesus, because that, every, people struggle with that. I know people who've literally lost their faith over that story because they don't think the end is right. They're like, that's weird. Like, that doesn't—no, the whole point is, why did Jesus do that? Why did he ruin his sermon? Why did he make everybody in his hometown hate him? That must have been tough for his mom. Can you imagine being his mom after that? Like, they're like, oh. Hope, can't wait till your son comes and preaches again, you know, like. But the, the whole point is, is that Jesus read the message of liberation to this group of people, and they said, isn't that great? We are the oppressed. The oppressors are all going to die. God is going to liberate us. It's going to be so great. Isn't this, this message of salvation is so nice. I'm going to go to this church more. Let's do a building campaign. Let's build more seats. This is, this is so great. I love this message, right? And Jesus is like, y'all are going to kill me. You know that, right? Like, you're going to be the oppressors. You think you're not the oppressors? You're the oppressors. You're the ones who are going to kill me. You're the ones who are going to crucify me. You're the ones who are going to hate me. You're the ones who are going to exploit me. You're going to take every healing miracle I ever do, and you're going to suck it in like, like a vampire, and then you're going to spit out everything I've ever taught you about righteousness and faith, and you're going to be like, more, more, more. And then when I refuse to be exploited anymore by you and demand that you come to repentance and actually face God as the oppressors that you are and the exploiters that you are, you're going to kill me. And then you're going to hang me on a cross and you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. You are the oppressor. Not your oppressors only. If you can't see it, you can't experience salvation that he has for you and for all of us. <laughs> right? For God to save victims, he must first save perpetrators of explo exploitation and oppression. So what? Okay, so how do you apply this? One is, church, one of the things that we don't do is we don't see sin as truly abhorrent. 
This is partly because a lot of us are struggling with self-hatred because of the way the culture has structured our hearts. We're afraid that if we look more closely at our sins, it's going to make us hate ourselves even more. And I, I understand that. I understand that, okay? But part of becoming a solid, morally serious person is to see sin as, as horrifyingly abhorrent. So you have to both heal emotionally in terms of God's love for you and who you are and his justification and what it means that you don't have to hate yourself because God loves you profoundly and recognize that we are perpetrators of disgusting and horrible and abhorrent sin so that we can reject it and turn from it and not offer our bodies as servants of it, right? The, one of the ways to do this is to use metaphors about your own sin that you've never used before, which is to see, meditate on God's word and how, like when God calls something a sin and you participate in that sin, ask yourself this question. Say, say, God, in the person of your spirit, please help me understand in the intuition of my mind and in the working of my thought how this sin that I allow myself to, to do because I don't think it's a big deal and I think it's annoying that you tell me not to do it. Help me see how this action perpetrates exploitation and oppression on other people in my life. Show me how my my lack of interest in the well-being of my employees, show me how my fornication, show me how the way I use my money and time and belongings, show me how my lack of hospitality, show me how my latency to anger or defensiveness, show me how my blank oppresses and exploits other people in my life. Show me. Help me to see it. Because he will, and it will be, it, here's the thing. Ironically, it'll be kind of liberating. Right? Then also start with your eye, and don't stop there. So in, in Matthew 7, it's like, before you, so listen, before you save the world, you better make sure you've done your laundry. You know what I mean? Like so many of us are so willing to point at other people's sins, right? I, wouldn't it be great if like Twitter had this rule that before you criticized anybody on Twitter, you had to criticize yourself for like five tweets on the thing you were going to criticize somebody else for. So before you could be like, you're a racist, you had to be like, okay, here's five ways I'm a racist. And you like had to like type that in. And then when you did that, then you could like attack somebody else for being a racist. Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? Like, that's literally what Jesus says you should do. Right? He's like, listen, before you try to take a sawdust bit out of somebody else's eye, look at the plank in your own eye. Right? That is, start with you, and then remove it. Right? Actually repent, turn, change. Right? And then you'll be ready to help remove the sutback from your brother's eye. Right? Acting towards them for their good after you've prepared yourself by focusing on yourself. So it's one thing for a Christian to say, look, I need to focus on myself before I attack these other people. Absolutely true. But then if you say, therefore, I should never say anything about anything anybody else does. You know, don't judge and stuff. Well, no, it literally says in Matthew 7 that once you deal with a plank in your own eye, you really should help your brother and be there to help your brother and sister remove the sawdust from their eye. Which means you can't say that Pastor Nick said, look, I have to deal with the oppression and exploitation in my own life of my own sin, so I can't care about poor people. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that the more we deal with the exploitation and oppression that we create, the more we will understand the nature of exploitation and oppression in sin, the more we understand how it grows in the human heart, the more we understand how oppressors can be drawn out of it because we're being drawn out of it, the more we can understand how the mercies of God are a message of salvation, right? And the more we'll understand the, the true dynamics, and then we'll go, oh, so what I can do for my brother and my neighbor is X because of the mercies God gave me. Otherwise, you'll be so self-righteous, you'll go and do something that will never work in helping anybody. Because you haven't done the—actually, to use a modern phrase, done the work or going through the spiritual process of finding out how you can be healed from sin so that you will be a, a competent, at least nurse, if not physician, to help others. But we must help others. And then realize that before God, 
we're both perpetrators and victims. Okay, I want to say something really quick about the last one, even though my time thing says zero. Um, that is, Jesus is the great liberator for, himself, for the self-oppressed. And without this, you don't get it. Like, without this, we're not getting it. Which is this, why are we sinners? Why do, why have we become oppressors and exploiters? Or why do we submit to oppression? Why do we, why have we been, most of us, in some way complicit? We've been dominable in our, in our, us being oppressed. Why is that? Or why do we allow the creeping oppression? Solzhenitsyn just said, my whole country accepted lies. And then those lies became totalitarianism. And we got sent off to gulags. Like we were complicit in it. We let it happen. And it's, and listen, creeping tyrannies exist, exist, and systematic tyranny exist in every society all the time. Do you, do you understand this? It's part of human nature. Tyranny is always creeping, the destruction of human liberty, and systematic, incumbent, what used to be called de jure oppression. That is not, I'm sorry, de facto, as opposed to de jure is by law or by structure, right? That is legal, and de facto is by just, just the fact of it, right? Systemic racism used to be called de facto racism, which I thought, I mean, Latin, that sounds, that sounds sexy, right? So it's, it's already there. Do you understand? It's a fact. And so the, every human site in your family, in your life, in our nation, in our state, every, every, in your university, everywhere that you live, there is both creeping oppression, right? There's things you're trying to not let become a habit in your life, but if you let them become a habit, they will oppress you like video games or something. Like there's a creeping oppression, but there's also systemic oppression. There's like feelings you have from your family that you're trying to get rid of, but you don't know how. And they're like, they've always been the structure of your thought. You don't even know how to isolate them and get rid of them, right? That's systemic oppression. It's like inside of you. It's, it's like, it's controlling you. It's there, right? Both are bad. You got to fight both of them. But you see, the things that God says causes us to be both complicit in the perpetration of injustice and sin and to be dominable by oppression and exploitation is the moral weakness and corruption, the wretchedness, as Romans 7 calls it, of indwelling sin in us. That we then allow ourselves in our desperateness in that wretchedness, we offer ourselves, Romans 6 says, we give ourselves to sin as an offering because we want those things to save us. We think that if we give ourselves to these, to these actions of sin, these actions of exploitation and oppression, we will be saved. Maybe we have to step on other people's faces to get on the lifeboat, but it's justified. It's okay. We, we're going to do it, or we have to do it, or we don't have a choice, right? And so what happens is that our moral integrity is broken, but also our operational integrity. We are not strong enough to be free, and so that even if— even if the issue isn't just we allow ourselves to be oppressed, even if nobody's actually oppressing us like right this second, we will choose a new idolatrous oppression in our freedom. See, what these people forget is God does not say, I'm going to liberate you for liberty's sake alone. It does say it was for freedom that Jesus set you free in Galatians. But it says right after that, but don't use your freedom to cover up for unrighteousness. What it says in Luke 1 is, is that the reason God is coming as the great liberator is so that we can live in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so discover his passive path of peace. Now, what that means is that um, there's a bunch of stuff I want to say about this that I don't have time to say. What, th what this means fundamentally is that um, there is no such thing as God saving anybody without restoring them. Right? Like, I, like okay, if I could not live—okay, if, if I didn't have a responsibility to pastor God's people, I would be a redneck. I, I, some of you already know this. I would live on three acres of land. I would have cars on cinder blocks. 
I, I, would, I would throw cast nets on mullet, I would, and I would eat them fried. Like, I, at heart, I'm a redneck. I don't like any of the pretenses and trappings of city life. Um, they annoy me. I feel like everything's too expensive, everything's too complicated, everybody's too interested in how things look instead of how things work. Everything about it bothers me, okay? I would be a redneck, okay? I would literally sit on my porch in a rocking chair with a shotgun, okay? It's just, the, the, and I would watch the sunset over the, over the holler. Like, I literally would do that, okay? And so when I make fun of rednecks right now, I, it's because I love them and I wish I was one, okay? But like, there's a stereotype that rednecks have all these like cars in their yard on center blocks just sitting there rusting, right? And in that way, God is not a redneck. There is no car that he saves from the crusher that he doesn't restore to its former beauty and make better. There's no such thing as that. Yeah, he'll put you on cinder blocks for a little while. You know, it's part of the healing process. But he's not going to leave you there. Every car that goes on cinder blocks goes into the garage. And slowly, and it, see, this is what most of us look like right here. We're, I mean, we're not done. We're still getting puttied and sanded and rebuilt. But th- our assurance is rooted in the work of the Spirit in us rebuilding us. There is no oppressor and exploiter that he saves from, from our, our action of exploitation or even from exploitation coming onto us that he doesn't save from the inner self-exploitation of accepting and offering ourselves to indwelling sin. He calls us out of the slavery of self-oppression and calls us to put sin to death and no longer give ourselves to that idolatry and allow ourselves to be killed by it. And in addition to our self-oppression, to then act out in oppressing others and accept the oppression of others in its continual working of our destruction and damnation. It must apply. He will apply those he redeems to the restoration of redemption. You must exert yourself in faith and in Christ to free yourself. I say that advisedly. To free yourself from the domination of sin. Think of what he says in Romans 6. He says, You have been offering yourselves as offerings to sin. What benefit did you receive from that which is killing you? Instead, offer yourselves to God. Now, what it literally says is, You have been set free to God. That is, God has done the work of already freeing you. So you're offering yourself to him and his service is, is graciously empowered, but you still have to do it. Lastly, it's important to say this. Um, Jesus is not Wendy's or whatever barbecue place you like. You don't get to pick two of these three things. You understand? Jesus is the perfect liberator. He's the great and perfect savior. He saves completely and from all. Which means the bad news is you don't get to pick one of those three things or two of those three things. They are all true. He will save you as the oppressed. He will save you from being among the exploiters. He will save you from the internal self-giving of yourself to self-exploitation. He will redeem you from that, all three or none of the three. But that's the good news. The bad news is the good news, which he will save you from all three. You can be saved from all three. Delivered finally in his second advent and, and delivered progressively in the formation of holiness in the present. And he does it by his death and resurrection, by the pouring out of his spirit. He gives you the knowledge that by trusting in him, you can receive the forgiveness of your sins, the knowledge of salvation, so that the coming of the second David, when he comes against all oppressors, he comes against what you used to be, not what you are now. You stand justified by him. 
that you are no longer one of his treasonous subjects, exploiting his own, but one of his own beloved children who he's accepted back and made right in his own standing. And one who he has changed in, from an exploiter to an ambassador in the present to call all exploiters and oppressors to him, to put it aside and to come to him fully and to be redeemed and restored so that when he comes, he finds as few oppressors as there could possibly be. He finds people walking in the way of peace. He finds people longing for the day when they can live before him in peace and righteousness all their days. Believe in him more fully, more completely. Exert yourself more entirely towards him in gracious striving. There is nothing more worth it. There is nothing more better. There's nothing better and nothing more complete. Father, we pray that as we contemplate these things in the season of Advent, that you would help us to take you as you are fully. That we wouldn't just accept the picture of you in the sacrificial system where you take away our iniquity, but you would, we would see that in the wider picture of your liberation of us as the second Moses and as the coming David. And Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to see it, to enjoy it, to embrace it, to to walk in it. In Jesus' name.